Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I'm honored to have Douglas Valentine joining me today to discuss quite a, gra a large conversation around the CIA, but I want to focus on how it pertains to Ukraine. But Douglas Valentine here joining me, a the author of The Phoenix Program, as well as CIA as Organized Crime, is such a perfect guest to discuss the history of the CIA, not just as it pertains to Ukraine, but what they their, the operations around the world and how they've taken some pretty illegal actions that seem to destabilize entities, but usually under a guise of, you know, at least from a government perspective of helping people. So thank you for being here today, Doug. And uh, let's let's dive into the deep background. How are you today? Uh, thanks for inviting me on your show. I've heard about your show for a long time, and uh, I was glad when Whitney introduced me to you. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I really, I really enjoyed your interview with Whitney as well. And I'll have to include that in the show notes for people to check out. So why don't we begin with a, the, the kind of the beginning of where I see my research showing the CIA being involved in Ukraine. And let's discuss what you understand about the CIA general operations but then also how it, where you see the beginning of that kind of operation happening in Ukraine. My research seems to suggest that from 1948 forward, CIA documentation makes it pretty clear that they were building some sort of fascist entity to use against the Soviet Union, sort of modeled after the Afghanistan kind of idea. So I've heard from your research that about 1917 forward is where you can see CIA operations in Ukraine. So why don't you begin letting us know what your research shows, how long sure. the CIA okay. There was no way to understand what's happening in Ukraine now or anywhere else um, without understanding the history. And I was fortunate to get, you know, introduced to people who um, uh, were uh, original members of the CIA, you know, guys like William Colby, who... Um, I met in 1984, and he agreed to help me write the Phoenix Program book to his eternal regret. And uh, he actually introduced me to a lot of his colleagues. He, he actually called up three or four people, actually called up four people and told them to talk to me. And among them were people who had been uh, in the OSS in World War II with him, with Colby. And of course, that's when... Um, uh, you know, immediately after World War II, as you said, and, you know, starting around 1948 is when the CIA, which had just been formed at the end of 1947, uh, actually began to, because um, it had just been created then, organize itself and start to conduct operations against the Soviet Union. And, um, uh, Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union at that time. At the end of World War II, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union had advanced into Eastern Europe. Uh, they actually, it actually uh, controlled half of Germany. I don't know if people, young people today are aware of that, but, you know, um, Berlin was divided into sectors and, and half of Germany, East Germany, uh, came under the control of the Soviet Union, as did a lot of countries in Eastern Europe, um, Poland, Ukraine. Uh, um, you can look at a map and, and, and familiarize yourself with the history to see what, exa what exactly it looked like. And so the United States itself 
after World War II had a strategy, a stated strategy, which had been formulated by the guys who won World War II and, and were starting to reorganize the entire United States government, um, mainly the military, the State Department, this new organization called the CIA, um, which was going to be the vanguard of operations against the Soviet Union. And at home, the, the FBI within the, uh, within the Justice Department and those four groups are all involved intimately and integrally in all these anti-Soviet operations. You can't just say to understand what's going on in the CIA. Um, the CIA um, in, the, in its early days was actually uh, at 1948, the, the, the vanguard of operations against the Soviet Union was an organization called the Office of Policy Coordination, which was created in 1948. And it was actually run by the State Department and the military, apart from the CIA, which still which had which had an office called the Office of Special Operations, which ran intelligence operations. But the the whole idea of covert operations of um, establishing political and, and psychological warfare operations against the Soviet Union uh, and conducting covert actions against the Soviet Union was, was were conducted by this Office of Policy Coordination under a guy named Frank Wisner, who had been in the OSS, but was working under the direction of the State Department and the military. So everything that was happening was coordinated at the highest levels by the National Security Council, by the military, which really had um, an overarching uh, concern about, you know, if anybody was going to fight the Soviets, it was going to be the military. So anything that the CIA and this Office of Policy Coordination was doing was, was coordinated and, and really directed in a lot of ways by the military and the State Department. Um, uh, these, the, 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 the covert operators, to a certain extent, were, were um, freewheeling and had uh, the ability to make it up as they went along, and they did. But eventually, in 1950, a guy came along who worked, who was, uh, became the director of CIA, a guy named Beetle Smith. And... Uh, he brought the Office of Policy Control under the CIA. He just said, "It's you're now under me," hmm. and that's when the when you know, and um, Korea had just started the Korean War, and that changed everything uh, historically. Um, uh, there was now actually a war going on between the United States. Uh, it was it's a lot like. To a certain extent, what's happening in Ukraine now, it was a NATO war. It was a war of, of um, United States and its allied forces fighting the Chinese army in Korea. And this really, really, really galvanized um, the military, the State Department, and the CIA and brought them to um, into the organization that we really know them now today. And it, it's the idea that... that um, um, you know, until that point, the creation of the People's Republic of China of 1949 and the, and the Korean War, things had been tense, 
but that's when when things really get active. And and so that's when organizationally and operationally the CIA kicks into high gear. You got to understand it's a whole worldwide thing, but the focus is is the Soviet Union. Right. And that's a really interesting overlap right there. I, I wasn't even con- thinking about the, the 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 Korean conversation here, but think for those out there listening, consider how that ended up. Consider how Doug just explained that it started. Essentially, it's a proxy war between the U.S. and China and the same thing we're seeing play out in Ukraine and other places today. And look at how it ended up where the U.S. is still present and still influencing or controlling what's happening. It's alarming. Sure. If you're looking for a historical precedent, that's Korea. Okay, it's a proxy war. Um, after uh, you know, in the days after World War II, um, the Soviet Union, England, and the United States divided, started dividing up the world. I mean, they divided up Europe. Um, there was a sphere of influence for the Soviets, um, and upon the 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 creation of the People's Republic of China, which had defeated. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist Chinese and forced them to relocate entirely to Taiwan um, starting in 1947. And if you'll notice the subtext of all the conversation that's going on now is um, that the the United States may have to go to war with China over Taiwan, Mm -hmm. which Taiwan historically claims is a part of China and which is historically a part of China, but which the United States claims is a sort of a colony, mm-hmm. because this is where it's, you know, aligned forces, the nationalists under a guy named Chiang Kai-shek were, were relocated. But it's with the, the Korean War that the CIA and the military start getting involved in the kind of covert operations which define the Cold War for the next 70 years. And that includes um, the drug operations out of the Golden Triangle. And when the Korean War began, that's when the CIA starts getting into trafficking narcotics in a big way. And in order to start fighting the People's Republic of China, they um, um, relocated a whole division of Chiang Kai-shek's army to northern Burma. And in order to run covert action, uh, covert actions and military operations, paramilitary operations against southern China, much the way things are going to be happening in Ukraine into Russia now, and from Poland into Russia now, um, and this force that sustained itself that the CIA established in northern Burma um, out of Taiwan. Uh, supported itself from the drug traffic out of out of Korea, and the drug it, it controlled the drug traffic out of Laos. It controlled it in Thailand, which the generals in Thailand were perfectly happy with, because they were making millions and millions of dollars as basically the, the distributors of all this this heroin that came out of um, Burma. They set up clandestine laboratories, um, and it's really. You know, I mean, you can read about it in Al McCoy's book uh, or my book, uh, Al McCoy's book, The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, or um, in my book, The Strength of the Wolf, about about how this gets set up. And this is really with the the CIA getting involved in the drug trafficking becomes the creation of 
<clears throat> what people tend to describe as the deep state. This is the area where the CIA and the United States government as a matter, a matter of unstated policy start taking over which they had been doing, they had been involved with, you know, since World War II on a major scale, involved with the mafia in Italy um, and drug trafficking, you know, allowing the, the mafia to drug traffic out of, out of um, uh, Italy in order to overthrow the communists there. But now they start, they actually take over, start taking over drug networks worldwide. And they're aligned countries, uh, nations in Thailand and, um, uh, and uh, Taiwan, and then eventually South Vietnam become uh, uh, cornerstones of the world drug trafficking operation. Well, that's the deep state. That's the the the, the uh, overlap enshrouded in secrecy, and enshrouded is a good word because it uh, uh, it really is a um, morbid way to go about uh, conducting foreign policy, secret foreign policy. But this is where uh, <clears throat> the United States becomes in illegal operations around the world, which cannot be made known to the United States public or else the, the government would lose its moral authority. So um, that's really the creation of a deep state, which uh, with all these CIA proprietary companies that can't be traced back to the United States government that become integrally involved with the uh, international organized crime to the extent of not just drug trafficking, but the sex trade, counterfeiting, uh, any kind of mechanism that can be used to subvert communist China and the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and then all of these things become integral to the CIA's operations the State Department operations, uh, the, the Pentagon actually creates an office in 1953 called the Office of Special Operations, which was where a guy named Fletcher Crowdy, who wrote a book called The Secret Team, where he was, he was established as an um, Air Force officer, which is created especially um, to support these extra legal CIA operations to provide, um, um, to, to beef up its paramilitary operations, to provide, you know, the, the CIA alone didn't have, you know, and it's, it's private Air Force Air America, didn't have enough aircraft to start mounting all these illegal operations around the world. So the military created the Office of Special Operations under a general named uh, Graves Erskine. You can look this up. You know he's on he's on the internet, <clears throat> and all of uh, and and which runs the military's psychological warfare operations, which had been established at Fort Bragg in 1950, um, and it becomes the birth of the U.S. Army Special Forces, and all these things start getting integrated with the um, organizationally under a shroud of secrecy. Um, the, the people have talked about it. They talk about censorship now, but more important than censorship is secrecy and the, the, the mechanisms for creating this, all these secret operations start are organizationally established in this period of time. 
basically from uh, 1948, 1950 to 1953, uh, with the, the creation of the military helping out in Oso, and then the, the CIA as we know it today gets finally established in 1954 when all these elements are brought together. And um, uh, that's when the United States is prepared to conduct the Cold War internationally uh, under a veil of impenetrable secrecy uh, in, in which it is involved in illegal operations, um, organized crime as an integral part of its operations to subvert and um, sabotage um, uh, the People's Republic of China and the, you know, and the USSR. So there's an organizational history to this, which is integral to what's happening. And within that, um, uh, political and psychological warfare go, comes to the forefront. Okay, yeah. and that's the thing that that you really have to understand in the Cold War. What is what what is political and psychological warfare as conducted by the covert action branch of the CIA and this Office of Special Operations in the military? Yeah, and and now we've seen this broaden out into everywhere else today. I'm uh, it basically, you know, the, it's not just the Soviet Union and China, right? Now it's any a, any entity that they deem necessarily counter to their interests. And what I found very interesting in that discussion is the way you framed that. It, it seems to paint as, you know, the CIA itself grew into this, I mean, essentially what it was in the beginning, but grew into this shadow government, this deep state entity that's almost challenging the authority of the ostensible powerhouse of the White House or whatever else we want to discuss. And what's interesting as well, you discuss these sort of what appears to be the, what they're building on a supposedly on a public level today. We see the public private partnerships of the World Economic Forum and how they're essentially transitioning all of this into it seems like the same kind of thing that we're dealing with these almost ability to to be unaccountable to say, well, it's not the government, it's the private entity. And so it's kind of the same way that operates. And I just think there's an interesting overlap there. But I'd like to I'd like to focus on, again, the 1948-53 time frame and what you understand about op operation or project aerodynamic with Mykola Lebed and how the, the, o the OSO, but becoming the CIA on the record was building a fascist entity to basically on the record be used against the Soviet Union, just like you described. What do you know about that and between the time frame of that to 2014? You know Was that the one with prologue? Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, before I get into that, yeah, I know about that. <clears throat> and you can read about it in a book uh, by Burton Hirsch called The Old Boys. But you can also just Google it online. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff about it. And um, how this guy, Labed, I think was the name of the guy that was put in charge of it, how he came to be the head of it which is the perfect example for um, political and psychological operations as they start becoming integral to overthrowing, subverting the Soviet Union first and now Russia. But let me go back to the public-private thing that you just mentioned, because that's so important. After World War I, okay, this will just take a minute. Take your time. The United States did not want to join the League of Nations. Um, the, historically, the United States 
viewed Europe as this crazy place of ethnic rivalries that was bent on destroying itself and refugees from all these countries which had been at war with each other for centuries, you know, were came back to came to the United States seeking like Ukrainians fleeing U Ukraine now, uh, trying to get away from Europe and this insanity that of uh, nation states battling each other for, for centuries, which, you know, they all spoke a different language, not like in the United States, and where people would integrate and begin speaking English and, and um, uh, it, so the United States had a policy of, of isolationism. Well, at the same time, after World War I, there were people who had economic interests overseas, and they looked into the future, and they knew that as America's economic interests growing, and this is the public, the, the, you know, the, excuse me, the private driver of American foreign policy, which is not only on an equal level, with the military and the State Department and the Justice Department and the CIA, but actually over, you know, has is is the executive ideological driver of all these bureaucracies is the American interest in making money around the world, and they form the people who who uh, have these economic interests around the world form something called the Foreign Policy Association in the early 1920s. And the Foreign Policy Association since is funded by Rockefeller and, and Ford and, and, and all these uh, uh, industrialists who have economic interests overseas. Ford wants to sell uh, trucks to Germany. You know, General Electric, I mean, it's just wherever, wherever the markets are, I mean, they're, they're selling steel to Japan. Uh, they, you know, I mean, they just want to do business overseas and this policy of isolationism, you know, which is sort of Trumpism in a way, you know, I mean, it's, it's the reactionary nativist force in America. Um, you know, they want to get, get out of that, but they can't do it because they don't yet control the government. So they create this foreign policy association, which sends teams and survey teams to every country in the world and they uh, you know like alan dulles and and and, and people who later run the cia um, who are in the state department or are, are working with these people and they establish a network of americans business people overseas guys like uh, james angleton who eventually runs the CIA's counterintelligence division. His father owns um, uh, a typewriter business in Italy. You know, I mean, and, and they, these are people who, through the Foreign Policy Association, are starting to establish intelligence networks as they see what is happening in Europe and the writing on the wall that there's going to be another war. And so all these private industrialists are creating intelligence networks which exist apart from the United States government. And when the United States government, when Franklin Roosevelt creates the Office of Strategic Services in World War II to become like, which is like the first CIA, he goes to these people. And these people become their sons and daughters and, and um, employees create the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is um, 
the forerunner of the CIA, and it's run by these private individuals hmm. who, who already have networks overseas, um, and they they actually can can tap into what they have in place already, and and that's what they do, and that's why Roosevelt, who's well aware of this privateer part of an American society. And privateer really is the word for it. You know, I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had an ancestor, Warren Delano, who smuggled opium into China in, in the 1850s and 60s. He set up a floating warehouse offside, off the shores of Canton and with, with Chinese gangsters imported and, and, and pushed opium onto the Chinese. So they're well aware of this network that exists of American traders, who free traders who want to have access to markets. And all this is developing in the shadows at the same time that um, uh, the government itself is after World War II organizing the CIA. Well, these people are organizing their own shadow intelligence networks at the same time okay and and the the people who ran the oss go into the cia and when they need to do and, and create uh, and start running the cia when they need to do something that they don't want to tell the government about they just activate these old commercial networks the guy who created the oss guy named william donovan is at the forefront of this you know, of the shadow government, which is also a part of the controlling part of the deep state. You know, it's actually, it is the deep state, the, the right. private enterprise part of all this, which um, appoints secretaries of defense, appoints secretaries of the State Department, which appoints whoever is going to become the director of the CIA. I mean, these are the people who put these people in place. You know, I mean, they're the ones who determine, you know, that these, who's ideologically and in tune with the business interests of the United States going to run these organizations. You know, it has nothing to do with the voters. Mm -hmm. Right. Who know, you know, nothing about any of this. You know, I mean, they need people who know how this works and it comes from this private network. So, Donovan, after World War II, was still feared, was so feared by the nativists in the United States that they feared his OSS was going to evolve into a CIA, which was going to become an American Gestapo. And so they kicked him out. And he went and he formed an organization called the World Commerce Corporation with friends from British intelligence. And they started establishing these private networks all around the world. And when I say World Commerce Corporation, they did. They, they set up branches in uh, South America, Central America, uh, Asia, and um, the people who had run the OSS, who were industrialists. I mean, major, big-time industrialists, Mellons, Rockefellers, um, and people from who owned... Uh, TV stations and newspapers, like a guy named Goodfellow, who was one of the um, um, Preston Goodfellow, who, who, who owned 
publishing houses in the, in the United States and, and who was instrumental in setting up psychological operations. These guys will become a Donna, part of Donovan's World Commerce Corporation, and they set up places all around the world that the government has no control over, but they allow the, their friends in the CIA to use them as covers for their operations in, in, in every country, in every city around the world, and, and, and major city. And, and that's how this, this whole deep state starts going, okay? And there's academics involved. There's, um, uh, you know, the academics are, are, are tapped by the, by, the, by the CIA because they have been part of, the, they were part of the research teams that the Foreign Policy Association sent around the world to do studies on, on tribes in, in Thailand and Burma or uh, even how the opium business was run in particular countries, uh, every aspect of every country. And these academics become, uh, you know, they're people like sort of like Henry Kissinger. They become the librarians. They become the, 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 the they build the databases that of, of important information. And they also become agent recruiters off the books in academia all around the world. You know, and they become instrumental in, um, you know, what um, Frances Sanders, I think was her name, a woman who wrote a book called Cultural Cold Wars. You know, they become the people who, who start um, the, the intelligentsia, who appeal to the uh, leaders in Europe after World War II to move away from the Soviet Union and to come into the social democratic um, uh, fall that the CIA through, a, a pro, through an operation that's called, um, um, was created by, called by a guy named Cord Meyer called uh, in the CIA's international organizations branch of its, of its covert action division to actually court the compatible left away from the Soviet Union. And this is what they really focuses, and there's the beginning of what you were talking about, this aerodynamics and um, uh, 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 operation called Prologue, which works into Ukraine. Sorry I took the long road no. getting there, but you got to understand what the nature of the, res the, the resources that are available to the CIA, which are totally off the books, and the, this is this is how this aerodynamics and prologue gets put in place. It's a it's a psychological warfare operation, and all psychological warfare operations rely on the first part on controlling the information services in any country. That means you've got to control the newspapers and the media outlets. All right. Um, uh, in South Vietnam, the CIA owned the the, the three main um, TV stations and, the, and and all the major newspapers. I mean, they owned them, uh, you know. And they, they and then so that they, that was easy, you know. Um, which which but in the, trying to uh, 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 wean away compatible leftists in the Soviet bloc was a little bit more difficult. Okay, and um, uh, so um, the people who had 
run psychological operations for the OSS in World War II. After World War II, through um, the refugee communities in the United States, people who had fled Europe to the United States, I mean, people like who, who um, spawned Victoria Newland, you know, and 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 the, and the people with Ukrainian names that you see now in the State Department who are running U.S. operations against uh, Russia, you know, and and their parents had come to the United States and 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 were the the people that are recruited by the CIA in the early days um, to run psychological media operations against the Soviet Union. They were the original compatible left. And, and, and they, one of the operations that they set up, the one that they set up into Ukraine, and while everybody focuses on a guy named Stefan Bandera, who was, you know, basically a meat chopper, a guy with an axe in one hand and a hand grenade in the other, and, and was, was, was valuable to the, to the CIA because he was willing to be part of this um, um, paramilitary gladio operation, which established uh, arms caches secretly in Eastern Bloc network uh, nations and um, uh, in, in, in nations that were uh, at the time uh, like Italy uh, or Greece, which were not part of the Soviet Union, but which were the front lines of, of the battle with the Soviet Union. There was all, you know, there were these guys like Stefan Bandera who were willing to, um, who, you know, actually were frothing at the mouth and wanted to just start, you know, grabbing a gun and, and killing communists like they had done all through World War II. They had to be slightly restrained and, and brought under control of CIA and U.S. military um, personnel and told to just calm down a little bit. Your day will come. And they, they set up arms caches around the, um, in, in all these nations that I'm talking about and in the Soviet Union for the day when the uprising would come. And these were the paramilitary uh, uh, forces, which are part of the covert action branch of the CIA. And, and they, they uh, are run by CIA officers in the, in the paramilitary branch and also by U.S. Army special forces. Okay, who who are basically working out of the psychological warfare division of the um, the U.S. Uh, military, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Pentagon, through this Office of Special Operations under this guy, Graves Erskine. Okay, they're all working together, and 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 at the same time, more importantly, to the CIA are people like this guy LeBed. I think his first name was Frederick. Mycola, if I remember correctly, Mycola Lebed. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't remember specifically, but I do remember his name was Lebed, mm -hmm. and and he is established in given radio stations. Like he becomes integral to Radio Liberty, Radio America, exactly. um, making radio broadcasts into Ukraine. And this guy's and a the same known time, Nazi war criminal. I just want people to hear that. This Lebed was a known Nazi war criminal. That's important. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, uh, 
Uh, I've spoken about that at length elsewhere, but um, you know, the people who who are the vanguard are basically recycled Nazis. Right. You know, I mean, these are the people who hate communists and communism. Um, uh, the communists actually fought the Nazis in France and in Italy, which is why they get a foothold in those countries after World War II, which is where, um, you know, this cultural war evolves, where, where, the, where the CIA is appealing to the intelligentsia in France and appealing to the intelligentsia in Italy. You know, no, uh, come over to our side. We can, you know, if you come over to our side, um, they're, they're recruiting union leaders. You know, the unions in the United States uh, are send a lot of people over to Europe to try and wean unions away from the from the communists and create social democratic um, uh, 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 political parties. So they're creating CIA is using tons of lots of money, a lot of which comes from Donovan's World Commerce Corporation. It's totally off the books. And as mafia drug money being recycled into this stuff, so the CIA doesn't have to get up, you know, have its hands dirty by being involved in drug trafficking. But, you know, they're recycling all, you know, they make deals with the mafia in the United States. Um, Santo Traficante becomes, a, you know, establishes franchises around the United States after World War II and, and uh, becomes the the CIA's drug distributor in Tampa, you know, which is an arrangement that lasts for like 30 years. Anyway, and Meyer Lansky is involved and, you know, the whole thing becomes a way of recycling money. So it'd be component to these political operations in Italy and France, you know, the French connection and all that stuff, um, which is basically aimed at unions and um, the intelligentsia. But this guy, Labed, and, and, and who, who sets up this, the CIA sets up a proprietary company where he produces books and literature, right? And you have printing press. And these things are sent into Ukraine. And they're um, basically technical. Lots of them are technical manuals. They're very, it's a very benign form of white propaganda as opposed to Black propaganda, which is where you actually pretend to be a communist to try to move communists over to our side, you know, and you recruit communist agents, which is more the traditional way of the CIA conducting intelligence operations, very secret, recruiting people in the communist party and just having them slowly over 10 years subvert the party from within. You have these white propaganda operations by this guy Lebed, and they become they move into the area of gray propaganda because you don't know that the CIA is underwriting them. The publisher for Lebed's um, um, books, you know, is a proprietary company, but it's covered like by Harvard University. <laughs> you know, Harvard University is is saying. Um, uh, we're funding this this magazine. We're its main subscriber. Uh, the, these books we're publishing. We're we're providing money for these books because they they're 
capitalists and they are for freedom and that's where they get the money and 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 the same thing starts happening um do you, you don't need me to talk more about that do you a prologue was the name of the publishing company i mean it exists until 1970 when it's exposed right, right. as having been a cia operation all along but by that time it was in existence for 25 years and 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 harvard go, gets in a little bit of trouble but harvard never gets in much trouble you know i mean they're they're the part of this academic i i don't understand um, yeah branch that's that's actually I don't I don't um, I don't understand why the CIA is able to conduct and not have some kind of repercussions for an operation inside the United States. I mean that's in and of itself is pretty transparently yeah, yeah, against I mean, the law. They're, they're a branch of, of all the deep state that's all working together and and um um they're pro business, they're pro capitalism, they're pro freedom. You know, so they're helping to establish and provide um you know, this guy Labed himself's not writing all this propaganda. Right, right. If well, I, you, I, I you know, uh, he's got people from Harvard, and this is just an example, you know, Victoria Newland's parents, you know, for, who, who are writing this stuff, you know, who have already integrated and become academics and become part of the State Department, and, 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 and they want to create businesses in Ukraine. And so, um, you know, they're all contributing to this, and it goes on until 1970 when um, there's a bunch of uh, exposés about the National Student Association, you know, ramparts and magazines at the time, which actually investigated CIA, which nobody is doing anymore, which nobody basically really can do anymore because exactly. the bill of security is so... Well, this, uh, is where the, this is where the public-private partnership comes into play, right? Where you're no yeah, longer yeah. able. Yeah, and that's you know, I mean, and if anybody's uh, um, example, it's Harvard. You know, I mean, they are they bring together private people and, and public policy, and and they provide cover for the CIA. So if you want to look at anybody, you know, Harvard is the example. And it and as it is in this case with this creating all these technical manuals which tell people how to basically set up capitalist businesses right well let, let, let's, let's do this to, let, let's 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 shift really quickly okay. in the interest of time to i want to focus on post 1970 that you just laid out but i want people to remember as my audience is very aware of that michael labed was plucked out of the he was a member of the organization for ukrainian nationalists right which was on the record a fascist level fascist entity right they so they knew that this person was a a nazi war criminal the cia plucked him out put him in this position to propagandize both the u.s and ukraine and as doug laid out don't miss what he said there which is so important of newland and the family line ties back to the pre-cia era and in populating these people to then be the ones in positions of power pushing propaganda and, and, and operations against Ukraine. I find that to be so incredibly important. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, um, at the same time that they're propagandizing Ukraine, they're propagandizing the United States. I mean, all this stuff is, um, you know, uh, they're bringing, let me just skip forward to 1991, mm -hmm. the, the collapse of the, the Soviet Union. And, um, now Ukraine becomes, um, it's no longer part of the Soviet Union. 
is going to become an independent nation pretty shortly, and it needs to be organized. And that's when, um, you know, just skipping from all this stuff that happened from 1970 to 1991, I mean, it, you can fill in the blanks, but in 1991, apparently, a guy who'd been an old SS officer, OSS, Office of Strategic Services, and a big shot of the CIA, who had then gone in, into the private business uh, and in actually aerodynamics. Uh, he, he was creating, um, helping um, to create uh, um, satellite imagery um, ah, uh, so that, you know, the, the, the the, the U-2 spy planes, a guy named Frank Lindsay, goes to uh, Ukraine, to Kiev in 1991, after the um, um, fall of the Soviet Union, and he begins to arrange for members of the Ukraine Secret Service to go to Harvard for training. Hmm. Of course. <laughs> okay? And, and everybody knows who he is. Okay, because you know, got people like Lebed and these psychological warfare operations have been laying the groundwork. I mean, the the Soviet Union was real really began to topple starting around 1970. And um, um, you know, there's a series of leaders there, one who's weaker than the next, and and um, uh, Gorbachev, of course, is the 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 primary um uh, uh, and his policy of perestroika, he really saw a brighter future for Russians in, 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 in you know, I mean, it was like, he really, really went over to the, you know, he was the compatible left and, and he helped dismember the Communist Party and the Soviet Union. And that's what people, you know, he, it didn't happen in a minute. You know, all this, all these psychological operations that were, uh, closing in on the Soviet Union from Poland, from Italy, from Greece, from Turkey, from Iran. I mean, closing in from every direction. They had, they actually did work. And people in the uh, in the Soviet Union wanted to go. Putin is not a communist. You know, Putin was one of these people in the early 1990s who saw that, um, actually believed that that. Uh, the Russian economy should be integrated with the Western economy. And, they, you know, I mean, they really did break down all the barriers, seeing that it would be a brighter future for Russians and Ukrainians if the uh, economies were brought together. What they, what they did not understand was that, and uh, 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 which Gorbachev and especially Yeltsin were very naive about, and which it took a while for Putin to wake up to, was that um, um, the United States wanted to control all these businesses? They had no, they had no interest in letting Ukrainians or Russians or Poles actually control their businesses. American corporations wanted to take them over and 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 siphon off all the products, pro, you know, uh, profits for themselves. And and they were they actually, you know, to become tax exempt. Money laundering uh, uh, spots for for American industrialists, you know, that would get loans from the United States government through the Agency for International Development to be a you know to establish these businesses with the assistance of Harvard, and if, you know it took Putin a while to wake up, 
And, you know, and, and that's, but this guy, Lindsay, in 1991, uh, OSS, CIA, private enterprise to make a lot of money, um, um, starts sending back Ukrainian Secret Service people back to the United States. They, at that particular time in the 1990s, KGB officers were coming to the United States for training and for, you know, like, just like the... Um, Nazis were denazified and recycled by the CIA and became became the vanguard for anti-communist operations like Labed. You know these guys are become the 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 uh, uh, leaders of what becomes security services for the oligarchs who take over Ukraine and Russia. Let me ask you uh, let me ask you a question, Doug. So it, what's interesting to me is what you're painting there. The and a classic tenet of like Italian, like the, the classic idea of fascism is this blending between corporate and and government lines. And so what you're really describing there seems to suggest that the U.S. government has always sort of been a secret fascist entity, she, cl- pretending to be more of a democratic entity and building this sort of fascist level coordination, public private partnerships all over the world. Am I wrong in saying that? Does that sound accurate? No, I mean, it's simple. I'll explain it to you in a minute. Uh, A corporation is essentially a totalitarian organization. Mm -hmm. There's nothing democratic about a corporation. You have a a, um, chairman of the board, Elon Musk, or anybody, and and you have a board of directors, and... and, um, their only interest is making profits for that corporation. And then they, the organizational geniuses from Yale and Harvard organized the CIA and the military along corporate lines. It was not the, the people who actually organized the CIA, organized the Department of Defense, are organizational geniuses who organized Ford, who organized General Electric. And they organized the State Department and the, and the Department of Defense and the CIA the same way. These are totalitarian bureaucracies. And they have not, they do not have the interests of average Joe in mind. You know, I mean, average Joe works in their plant and they don't consider his interest, you know, they let him pay the taxes, the corporate taxes. You know, uh, I mean, the whole, uh, a corporation is a totalitarian um, entity. And that is the true nature of the United States of America. And everything it projects around the world is total this totalitarian corporate paradigm. And the psychological operations that are waged against Americans are waged by these corporations through advertising on TV. Yeah. You know, let's Coke and Pepsi, let's, you know, uh, let's everybody in the world is going to hold hands and drink a Coke. Nike, you know, which is um, really wanted to get into to China because it could hire laborers for 20 cents an hour who work 12 hours a day. But they don't, they don't, their policies towards laborers in China are no different than their policies towards laborers in the United States. I mean, these are totalitarian corporations just don't want to exploit workers. But the, the, the psychological operations that they wage against Americans, and, you know, 
with the help of the State Department and the Department of Defense. They don't even really need the CIA because, you know, military propaganda is so pervasive in the United States that sort of takes care of that. Well, the CIA having to get involved, you know, um, and and the FBI making sure that no leftists exist and no civil rights leaders exist, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's all perfectly set up so that um, people who get elected to Congress are uh, get elected to, to Congress on, with corporate money, <laughs> you know, and they they you know, and then they they spend all their time on the campaign trail while. People who work for corporations write the legislation for them, which guarantee the corporations that pay no taxes, you know, and, and, and it, it, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, th but, this this picture you painted is so undeniable that I'm so glad that you that you took the time to explain that history, because I think this has opened a door for a lot of people that, you know, we have a tendency to focus on what's in front of us, especially with the 24 hour news cycle. And so right now what you painted, it shows you this long, this continuity of this agenda. So what I'd like to do now for the remainder of our discussion is to jump from 2014 forward, right? So let's talk about how, what you clearly just painted, this, this building of not just the fascist entity in one location to be used against the Soviet Union, but as this kind of sprawling worldwide connective kind of agenda. Let's focus on what happened in Ukraine since that's such a focal point for today. So 2014 forward, what do you know about how that, what you described has been used from that point forward into today? Okay, in Ukraine. Um, I'm kind of pooping out. So maybe five minutes and then. Okay, okay, no, absolutely. Minutes, let's but let's just, why don't we just finish with then, why don't we just finish with focusing on, you know, just the final point then in regard to Ukraine today and how all of that is being used, like with the Azov Battalion, let's say, or the Azov Movement, and how the, the, you can see the trail of that leading right back to the CIA and what you might see happening in uh, Ukraine going forward. At the same time that um, uh, these uh, covert action, psychological and political operations are being handled, there's a, what's called a foreign intelligence branch of the CIA, which is where, which is, um, setting up intelligence networks that are clandestine. Not a covert action branch that's deniable, but clandestine operations, which are never known. Mm. You don't know them. This is where um, the CIA conducts what's called unilateral operations, where they recruit a Ukrainian and they send them to, to Harvard they bring them back to Ukraine and they put them in charge of a company or the junior chamber of commerce or uh, a branch of the government. Um, they get them elected to become a mayor. And this guy actually works for the CIA, not for Ukraine. And he advances because he gets um, offshore accounts. You know, now I'm not saying that Vladimir Zelensky is, is an example of this, or is a unilateral American source for the CIA, even though he behaves that way. Uh, uh, but he would be an example of a person who is conducting, uh, who's in a position of immense power in a foreign country, 
and is advancing American interests because he's been a clandestine American agent since 2014 when his, when his um, uh, sugar daddy, who was a Ukrainian oligarch, who was one of the oligarchs that went over to, you know, around 1991 when I start when I was saying that, you know, you get the oligarchs to undermine the whole capital uh, communist system and and start creating, you know, um, this kind, which is what we have here, oligarchs. You know, they're not called oligarchs, but but this oligarch sets up um, uh, offshore accounts for Zelensky. This was Kolomoisky. You know, yeah, 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 and you can Google him a little bit, but um, you know, this is this is how the the clandestine networks work, and you get a guy who's a uh, been established for 10, 15 years, and it's a totally clandestine existence. Nobody will ever be able to connect Zelensky as a unilateral agent of the CIA. But they are all over Ukraine, and they have been put in place secretly by the foreign intelligence branch of the CIA, which is where the real guts of the agency work. Um, um, you know, the, the kind of secrecy that you can't ever penetrate. And, but you just have to sort of look at what's happening to see that Zelensky is advancing American and NATO policies not the not policies that are advantageous to Ukrainians, five million of whom have fled the country because of the policies that he's advocating. He could have stuck to the Minsk agreements. You know, he could not have, you know, he could have decided not to ban Russian. You know, but all these, if you look at the actual specific policies that he integrate that he implements through his, you know, this network that's set up. By the CIA, you know, uh, which uh, uh, includes people who are elected to Ukrainian Congress, you know, which is really, you know, where they, the the political operations take place. They're advancing American interests with the, you know, the promise that when all the 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 poor Ukrainians have been killed and have to come back to their homes, you know, somewhere down the line, uh, these guys will be the the new oligarchs. And uh, uh, America, you know, some kind, you know, I mean, it's possible with a guy like Zelensky, you know, that they blackmail some of these people into working for him. You know, they set up offshore accounts for him. And then if you'll notice, the off- Zelensky's offshore accounts became public in October of 2021, just as all, all this stuff was climaxing. And then all of a sudden they disappeared off the radar. You know, they sort of said, we can we can expose you to, you know, you I better see. start doing exactly what we say. And then they, all this information gets pulled back and nobody starts looking at too closely into it. The And, and, and this is what evolves from 2014 until now. The establishment of this clandestine network of unilateral, unilateral CIA assets who are actually Ukrainians but who are working to advance the Amer- America's interests, not Ukraine. And that's that you just have to look at what's happening to uh, understand, you know, that this is not good for Ukrainians to have a war with Russia. It only serves the interests of the United States and NATO, you know, and, and, and uh, 
uh, that to me is as obvious as the corporate totalitarian paradigm. You know, I mean, you you don't have to look too hard to see it. It may be clandestine, and you may not get to get the names, but it's right there in your face. I think what you laid out there at the end, I think, is so important that, that you know, the Panama Papers, the the information that came out that 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 you could perceive that potentially as a as a you know a nudge, a little threat to say, look, you know, we could do more, which potentially drove him into line. I think it's a really interesting thing to consider for sure. Doug, I would love to have you back on to dive in deeper to what we what we just left it at. So hopefully we can have you back on in the future. But I really enjoyed our conversation today. And I think what you laid out for people and the the history that led up to today is so invaluable. So thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for being here today. And hopefully we'll connect in the future and have more conversations. So as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.